Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're reflecting on what just happened in Parkland, Florida. 17 people are dead in what's being described as the second deadliest shooting at a school since 2012 here in Connecticut when 26 children and educators were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Mass shootings don't make up the majority of gun violence in this country, but they are the most unsettling, especially when they happen at a school. Coming up, we'll speak with Fran Rabinowitz, a former superintendent and now executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public Schools Superintendents. What conversations are educators having each time another school shooting happens? From the training they undergo to keep children and staff safe, to how they talk about these events with parents and with kids. We'll also check in with Paul Gianfrido, president and CEO of Mental Health America. He'll join us later to talk how, as a country, we should prevent violence. He says it's not as simple as pointing the finger at whether a shooter is mentally ill. We'll also talk about the policy changes that happen on a state level when mass shootings happen. But this hour is for you to call in and tell us what you believe needs to change in America. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. That number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to hear from a Connecticut woman and mother who has spoken out publicly since losing her daughter, Anna Grace, in 2012 in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings. Nelba Marquez-Green joins us now on the phone. Nelba, thank you for calling in today. Good morning. It's February 15th, and uh, if you look at social media, many of us are looking at this statistic that's being uh, mentioned many times, and that the Parkland, Florida shooting is the 18th school shooting in 2018. What was your reaction when you heard the news? Like so many people across the world, just shock, anger, outrage. But unfortunately for, for me, for my family, it's a little bit different. We also know after the shock, anger, outrage, or even during it, what really happens behind the scenes. So my heart was just really with those families, knowing exactly what these minutes and hours and days and weeks and even years will be like after. Uh, I mentioned we'll we're talking with Paul Gianfrido later about uh, how we respond uh, whenever uh, any kind of violent act happens in our country. And in past, um, the media often gets criticized for focusing too much on the shooter and not enough on the people who've been victimized, the family, the community members, the trauma that they are now um, experiencing. How best should we be reaching out to them? How should we be talking about this? Well, first I'll say that you're right. One of the things we do automatically, and I'm so glad you're having Mental Health America on, is link violence with mental illness. And what that does is create um, this kind of connection that I think is, is really stigmatizing and doesn't help folks come forward when they need help. But to answer your question, what can we do for those folks? There, there isn't, I, I wish people would understand that there isn't a m enough money or resource, mental health resources in the world 
to deal with the long-term impact of trauma that families who have and who do undergo this kind of event, right, and this kind of very public event and the smaller events that we don't talk about um, will need in order to live healthy lives after or at least productive lives after. Does that make sense? It does. And when we think about, again, you mentioned this, but the mass shootings are what get it that kind of hit us in the gut. And you know that better than anyone. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's violence, uh, there's gun violence, there's suicide, there's domestic violence that happen each and every day. And what are the things and the triggers that we can try to avoid to help people who are struggling? And that's part of what your project, the Anna Grace Project, is doing to help kids in schools. In particular with, with schools, and I think you bring up a really important point. Um, so Newtown, after the shooting, received millions and millions of dollars in grant funding for support of, of kids, of teachers, of community members. But our communities like New Haven and Waterbury and New Britain and Hartford and so many more who experience levels of violence, perhaps not 26 in a day, but certainly there are community activists who will tell you, hey, we've lost 26, 27, 50 kids since January 1st, and where are those community resources in the classroom? Because that be, that, those symptoms will then show up when kids maybe can't sit and they can't be still, and maybe they're not learning at the rate of their classmates. And we have to be there to stand up for those kids and to say, hey, they matter too. There won't be enough resources in the world to deal with the aftermath of this. We've got to stop it. When these incidents occur as well, um, there is a lot of talk about um, gun laws in our country, uh, and there's two sides who think that the gun laws don't need to be strengthened to make it harder to get certain firearms. And then there's the other side that says more needs to happen within Congress. I know after your daughter uh, was killed, you and other parents uh, at Sandy Hook we're also talking about what needs to change in, in terms of the, the gun laws in this country. And as there's, again, there's, a, there's frustration from many people when this happens. Again, they look and say, why does someone that, no matter what their background, able to get a particular type of firearm that can have this kind of effect in a school where 17 people have been killed and many more hospitalized? I'm not a policy specialist by any means. Um, I do think it's ridiculous of us to expect politicians to make wise decisions in the best interest of public safety when they're getting so much money from a lobby that discourages them from doing so. That'll be my only comment on that. I want to bring into the conversation uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, he's part of the Connecticut congressional delegation. He and his colleague, uh, U.S. Senator uh, Chris Murphy, have been very outspoken about um, the gun laws in this country. I wanted to, to play a clip from what Senator Murphy said yesterday, uh, just after news about the Parkland shootings. This happens nowhere else other than the United States of America. This epidemic of mass slaughter, this scourge of school shooting after school shooting. It only happens here not because of coincidence, not because of bad luck, 
but as a consequence of our inaction, we are responsible for a level of mass atrocity that happens in this country with zero parallel anywhere else. That was uh, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and his colleague, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, now joins us by phone. Senator Blumenthal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we were just speaking with Nelba Marquez-Green, who we know you know, and uh, I had asked her about, again, uh, whenever this happens, there are these conversations about what needs to change, whether it's gun laws, whether it's resources, and th- there doesn't appear to be an easy answer, but every time this does happen, you and your colleagues talk about the need to change gun laws to protect people in America. What is the conversation we need to be happening, having today, Senator Blumenthal? The day is beginning here with a lot of talk about the Dreamers and the need for DACA legislation, which has been on debate this week. But this horrific tragedy will change that conversation. A lot of us are going to be talking to colleagues about the need to break this vice-like grip that the gun lobby has on Congress and heed the call from Nelba Marcus Green, whose courage and strength are so inspiring, along with the other Sandy Hook families, and address this issue of gun violence. There's no panacea, no single solution, but Connecticut's experience actually shows that common sense measures against gun violence actually do work. We changed our laws in the wake of Sandy Hook, adopted a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and stronger and stricter background checks, among other common-sense measures that we've proposed before the Congress, and the result was a reduction in gun violence in Connecticut. So I'm going to be talking about my colleagues, about our practical experience here in Connecticut. Uh, Unfortunately, no state can do it alone because our borders are porous. Guns travel across state lines. We're at the mercy of the country's state with the weakest laws, even though we have some of the strongest. And so there has to be a range of measures across the spectrum of possible action without infringing on the Second Amendment. None of these measures in any way infringe on constitutional protections. They are all acceptable. The Supreme Court has said so. But we need to break that grip that the gun lobby and the NRA has on our Congress. Uh, Again, when uh, people look at uh, these mass shootings and look at, I think the reports are that it was a semi-automatic AR-15 that this individual used at Parkland, uh, the Parkland, Florida High School. before we can talk about policy changes, it's important to know the data. And the data is confusing this country when it comes to tracking school shootings and other shootings and gun violence generally. And how do we get at that to get the the right information before we talk about changing the laws? There's more than enough information to persuade any rational person that gun violence prevention should be a priority and that the laws need to be changed. That's why 95% of the American people want background checks for all gun purchases. And that's why the vast majority of Americans want to ban sales of the AR-15s, the kind of weapon used in Parkland, the kind of weapon used in Sandy Hook, the kind of weapon 
used in Las Vegas and most of these mass shootings because those weapons were designed to kill people, very simply, not for recreation or hunting. They're weapons of war. We have more than enough data. But, by the way, talking about information and data, the NRA has successfully barred information gathering Mm -hmm. by federal agencies that would shed light on this issue through amendments to appropriations bills. They're called riders. And the data has been lacking, but there's more than enough information to convince any rational person that action is necessary, and it's necessary now. Not only because of these mass shootings. They are horrific and atrocious enough. But remember, all around Connecticut, on the streets of Hartford, New Haven, Stanford, on the streets of our suburban and rural communities and homes and and other areas around the state, people are killed every day as a result of gun violence. Ninety people every day in America are dead because of gun violence, countless others injured. So it's not just in the mass shootings. It's the everyday casualties that result. That's U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal on the phone with us. Also on the line is Nelva Marquez-Green, mother of Anna Marquez-Green, who was killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in 2012. Um, Nelba, after your daughter again was killed, you and your family created the Anna Grace Project. Uh, it talks about promoting love and uh, providing support um, for children and families. Um, Later on, we're going to talk about the conversations that educators are having each time this happens in schools with children, with parents. Um, How is your Anna Grace Project continuing to work uh, to make schools and just make community a better place for people who are struggling? First, I just have to say that I'm not just the mother of Anna Grace Marquez-Green. I'm also the mother of Isaiah James Marquez-Green, who was eight at the time of the shooting and 13 now, and thriving and a straight-A student and an amazing athlete and a good friend. And every child should have the opportunity to rise up through adversity in order to be the best and healthiest productive citizen they can be. And that's what we do through the Honor Grace Project. We partner with community mental health providers. We partner with school districts. We partner with after-school support folks to be there for kids in the building. For those kids who are already showing symptoms of dysregulation and for kids beforehand to teach them skills to deal with intense emotion. Um, and, and, And that's what we do and we're grateful and uh, I'm grateful for my partners at CCSU at Klingberg um, in New Britain with the Consolidated School District and everyone else who has risen up and said yeah we can cost share we can share expenses and we can put more bodies in the building for school support we can put interns we can put marriage and family therapists we can put social workers we can put counselors and we can be there to rise up for kids and I'm grateful that everyone looks to me and looks to us whenever there's a school shooting for advice. But folks need to look in the mirror, and folks need to ask themselves what they need to do. Are they making the calls? Are they voting? Are they finding out if their representatives in their states are taking money from the NRA? This can't be a thing you put on victims to fix for you or even our elected officials to fix for us. If they're not fixing it, we got to vote them out. Nella Marquez-Green, thank you so much for calling in today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about uh, the latest school shooting at Parkland, Florida. And on the line with us is U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. We want to take your calls today. We had another show planned, and uh, we decided that this show was more important to hear from listeners to get reaction and to keep talking about this. Um, I wanted to take some calls now, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Bill's calling from Madison. Bill, go ahead. Hi, um, and hello, uh, Senator. Good morning. um, I wanted to mention it. I I feel that the senator's position on the uh, Connecticut gun laws is inaccurate or misleading. The reality is before Sandy Hook, Connecticut had effectively the most stringent laws in the country. The assault weapons ban in 1994 uh, was mirrored by the state and was not rescinded in 2004, as it was in the federal uh, situation. Um, and uh, so the, the laws that were passed in Connecticut after Sandy Hook were effectively cosmetic. And I say that because, uh, you know, saying that you can't have a pistol grip or, uh, a, a, you know, that, that just does not have any impact on the lethality of a weapon. The reality is that uh, semi-automatic weapons are standard weapons that have been for over a century. Every handgun sold and used in the United States for over a century is a semi-automatic weapon. Even a six-shooter is effectively semi-automatic, but most people who have guns have semi-automatic pistols, and most deaths caused by guns are caused by these handguns, and they're semi-automatic. There's a hue and cry to eliminate rifles that are semi-automatic. It has no real meaning in terms of the lethal nature of gun use. The reality is that in Virginia Tech, 38 people were killed by handguns, and that's an even bigger number. The, the, The enormity of the problem is that people make decisions, and they make bad decisions. And the real problem is this cultural phenomenon that we none of us can get our hands on. Why we're sick to our stomach every time we read another one of these things is that people go and do this. But we don't know why they go and do it. That's the real problem. And, and so attacking it from the gun legislation side is not going to work unless you literally confiscated every single pistol and handgun in the United States. And that's not going to happen. Let me put another aspect Bill, to this. Bill, I want to get Richard yeah. Blumenthal to respond. Okay, thank you. Well, let me, let me respond to what you've said so far. Number one, uh, mental health clearly has to be a priority. We need to provide help and outreach and treatment to troubled young people, including young men like Adam Lanza, like the shooter in Parkland. But... At the same time, there needs to be responsible common sense measures to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous criminals and others who pose a danger to themselves. A lot of deaths are by suicide as well as others. And that can be done through background checks. Now, let's be very realistic. We're not going to prevent all gun violence. There will always be deaths and casualties as a result of gun violence, but we can make enormous progress, and Connecticut has done so with laws that are more than cosmetic. They are real, but there is room for improvement, if that's your point, and they can be strengthened and toughened and made more effective, all of it consistent with 
the Second Amendment, which guarantees the right, I will defend it as passionately and zealously as anyone, of law-abiding people to have weapons, guns, that are consistent with that law. And so taking away everyone's guns is not the solution. It is taking guns away from people who pose a danger to themselves or others, including domestic violence perpetrators who are under restraining orders because a woman is five times more likely to die in a home where domestic violence is committed and there is a gun. So there are situations, restraining orders being one of them, where danger signs are apparent and action should be taken. I want to take another call before we head to break. Stephen's calling from North Stonington. Stephen, go ahead. Hi, Lucy. Hi, I'm Mr. Blumenthal. I just Hi. wanted to, um, I didn't prepare a big uh, speech, but I just wanted to contrast the different uh, oh, Stephen, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Start over. Your cell phone just came out. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. We can, go I ahead. I just want to contrast how hard it is to get an abortion in this country as, and how easy it is to get a gun. You're made to wait uh, two weeks as a woman to get an abortion, 48 hours um, parental permission, a note from the doctor that you understand, watch a video. Uh, you, the one, one place to go get an abortion in the state compared to just gun shop on every corner. I just want to know what you think about that. Who's making the laws that make it harder harder to get an abortion than a gun? Stephen, thank you for your question. Senator Blumenthal, did you want to respond? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I have been a staunch and strong defender of a woman's right to health care and reproductive choices. And those kinds of choices are guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment. At the same time, the Second Amendment is not absolute, neither is the Fourth Amendment. No constitutional right is absolute. In the case of guns, uh, clearly there's different treatment, and certain kinds of guns have to be uh, uh, brought under some kind of protection for uh, purchasers in the sense that some kinds of purchasers, by virtue of their danger, and there has to be due process to them, are uh, clearly perilous to themselves or others. I think the two rights are very different. They shouldn't be compared. A woman has a right to health care and to decide when she is pregnant and when she gives birth, that's the kind of right that needs to be protected. And I would protect Second Amendment rights, but clearly if someone is dangerous to himself or others, they should be constrained and there needs to be protection to society from these kinds of mass murders. Uh, just real quick, uh, we are hearing that President Trump will be speaking at 11 a.m. in response to the Parkland, Florida uh, school shootings. What do you want to hear from him, Senator? I want to hear that he's committed to common sense measures to stop gun violence, as I've been discussing, background checks and a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines and enforcement of uh, restraining orders that prohibit people from buying guns when they pose a danger to their spouse or, or partner 
And those kinds of common sense measures are action. We want more than just words. Richard Blumenthal is Connecticut's U.S. Senator. Uh, thank you for calling in today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking uh, about uh, what just happened in Parkland, Florida. And we want to hear from you, too. The number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to talk with educators and mental health advocates, and we're going to take your calls. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the latest school shooting, this time in Parkland, Florida. 17 people are reported dead, more than a dozen others hospitalized. Each time a mass shooting happens, I'll admit we struggle with how to talk about this with you. When we say 18 shootings have happened in schools around the U.S. since the beginning of 2018, does that number surprise you? On average, there's nearly one school shooting a week in the U.S. That's according to Everytown Research. It's a nonprofit organization that advocates for gun control. Now, in previous shows, we talk about changes to gun laws. We hear from listeners who are frustrated with Congress. We interview researchers who say uh, the problem should be viewed through a public health issue lens. Meanwhile, many of us send our children to school and trust their teachers, their schools will keep them safe. Here's teacher Melissa Falkowski. She's from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Uh, that was the place where the shooting happened yesterday. Here she is speaking with Anderson Cooper. We have drilled for this, yes. We had a training recently. Um, we, I, like, we could not have been more prepared for this situation, which is what makes it so frustrating because we have um, trained for this. We've trained the kids for what to do. And so the frustration is, is that we did everything that we were supposed to do. Bower County Schools has prepared us for this situation and still, you know, to have so many casualties, um, you know, it's very, at least for me, it's very emotional because I, I feel today like our, you know, our government, our country has failed us and failed our kids and didn't keep us safe. Again, that was a teacher from the Florida High School where the shooting happened. Uh, joining our conversation now by phone is Fran Rabinowitz. Uh, Fran Rabinowitz uh, was, a, was a former superintendent. She now leads uh, the Connecticut Association of Public Schools Superintendents. Uh, Fran, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What's your response uh, to what we just heard from this particular teacher from Florida? I'm sure um, after Sandy Hook when you were superintendent, I believe, in Hamden, the, the conversations that were taking place. How do educators respond each, and, each time this happens? Well, I think that, that teacher's response, um, you know, really sounded a note in me in that um, when I was superintendent in Hamden right after Sandy Hook, I met with parents that very weekend on that um, Sunday. We had a memorial service, and we spoke about safety in the schools. And one of the most difficult things that I said was, we will do everything. We will study lockdown procedures. We will have our teachers and all of our staff fully prepared. But the truth of the matter is, at, at this point in time, I can't guarantee you 100% that your child will be safe. And that was a very difficult thing because as educators, caregivers, we want to say your child in our hands is completely safe. And the truth of the matter is um, when someone enters, uh, when there's an active shooter, 
um, you can protect and you can take measures and you can train your staff and you can do everything possible and you can save lives, but you cannot guarantee 100% safety. When you mention active shooter drills, this is commonplace in schools across the U.S. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, following Sandy Hook and prior to, to Sandy Hook, um, we certainly had those drills. Um, you know, by state law, we had to have those. But we um, obviously our um, antenna was up after Sandy Hook, and I remember having a um, community-wide safety committee where we were led by the um, police and the fire um, department on all of the safety measures that we needed to take in every single classroom. Um, You know, ensuring that you can walk the classroom, ensuring that um, teachers are very aware of uh, where to um, position the children, et cetera. And I do believe um, we can and should take every measure possible. Uh, the preliminary reports coming out of what happened in Parkland, Florida, is that, and we just heard from a, a, a teacher who's been trained in that particular school yep. district to deal with something like this, but preliminary reports was that the shooter pulled the fire drill, the fire, and the fire alarm, and people started streaming out, and that's when the shooting happened. Uh, when you hear that, what level of process or practice can be done to, to eliminate that, that risk? And, and to be honest with you, I read that this morning. I, um, I don't know because when a fire alarm <clears throat> is pulled, we empty a building. Um, and I, you know, until I know um, better ways to do that, I would never not empty a building. And that's what I mean about being um, 100% um, guaranteed of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I'm perfectly willing to listen to the um, safety experts, but frankly, uh, you want to you want to empty a building just as Parkland did as quickly as possible to um, to ensure that your children are safe. And you know, you can't always know every single piece of um, what might happen if you do that. Um, it's, it goes much deeper than that. Um, you know, I've, I was on hold and heard speakers um, talking. It goes incredibly deeper than that. Certainly, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I am encouraged by Connecticut laws, but I think they need to go further. I think we as a country need to take a look at where we are um, on guns, certainly, and and start to wake up and do things differently. Other countries aren't experiencing what we are experiencing. And the other piece of this that I feel incredibly strongly about, because after I served in Hamden, I served in Bridgeport, and I watched children um, killing each other on the street. And frankly, I do believe that the mental health services um, in our country and right now in our schools are not adequate for the, um, the level of mental um, uh, 
problems that we're seeing in our youth. I'm glad you mentioned uh, mental health resources, and I wanted to ask you, after Sandy Hook, I believe many schools uh, made a point to make sure that there was a police officer uh, stationed um, at the school, whether it's a school resource officer. I know that the town of Enfield at one point actually had um, armed um, guards. I think that was what happened right after um, Sandy Hook. I don't think yes. they do that anymore. But again, when it comes down to uh, cost, what is the what is the standard across the, the schools here in Connecticut um, to respond um, if there is a type of situation? Um, you know, was it case by case, district by district, as uh, resources continue to be cut on how to again keep children and their staff safe? Well, I mean, we certainly do believe in prior to, um, you know, Sandy Hook, we had security officers at the um, at the middle school and the high school. I do believe that we um, need to continue to have those. They're trained and well-trained in Bridgeport. We had um, security officers that were very much um, connected to the police department and were very well-trained. I think that's important. I do worry um, as uh, uh, school budgets have been slashed this year that we are losing um, many of our mental health support people. Um, I can tell you that in, um, in a Bridgeport, for example, there were never enough um, social workers or school psychologists to um, absolutely deal with all of the um, trauma we were seeing in um, children. And I do believe that the shooters were probably um, children that teachers, um, our wonderful teachers who really know children, probably recognized very early on that there were issues and, um, you know, wanted treatment, begged for treatment, et cetera. But I just don't believe that there are enough mental health services in our schools to serve um, with early intervention all of the children that need to be um, uh, taken care of. This is where we live on the phone with me, Fran Rabinowitz, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. We're talking about uh, the uh, plans uh, in place at schools uh, to protect uh, children, to protect staff uh, in these uh, moments where um, mass shootings at schools continue to happen, including just yesterday in Parkland, Florida. I wanted to bring in uh, a caller, John from Plymouth. John, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I agree with the mental health issue, but Mr. Blumenthal missed the mark on gun control. I believe it's a, it's a matter of educating from an early age our kid about, kids about gun safety and weapons. Number, number two, I believe we need to arm the school staff to prevent stuff like this. Thank you. That was John from Plymouth. Uh, Fran, do you want to respond? Because we just talked about how there are different sides uh, to this conversation. And John from Plymouth uh, was saying that that maybe the solution is arming teachers and staff. We've had that conversation before in Connecticut. Uh, what's your take? Uh, I don't believe in arming our, um, our teachers and our staff. Um, I don't, I just don't follow that, um, that line of reasoning. I've I believe that we need to address this as a society on a much deeper level. 
which is um, certainly the mental health level. And I believe we need to um, look at more stringent um, gun control laws. Obviously, guns are available out there to our youth, and, um, you know, they can get them very easily. I don't know all of um, the procedures and how they do get them, but I know that they do. I I would also say, um, and you mentioned it, I would say that um, every school, every school, regardless of whether you don't think you'll ever be touched, every school should have a very um, uh, complete and well-delineated um, safety plan for their staff, including all the new staff that comes in, et cetera. It's a challenge as a former superintendent to make sure that every staff member is trained in safety procedures, but I think it is um, as absolutely necessary as it is to have staff trained in how to teach reading. Um, it's just incredibly important. Fran, I just want to ask you one more question. Uh, sure. We're also hearing uh, reports that this shooter in Florida was expelled from that school. So mm-hmm. we're wondering what is the responsibility from of school and community when a student is expelled to put that student in touch with mental health services? Because is that a gap that needs to be filled? Well, first of all, um, it's hard for me as a former superintendent to comment on that because, frankly, I don't know what the um, circumstances were around expulsion. I personally believe expulsion is a consequence, not an intervention. We certainly have to take that measure um, more often than I would like to see um, for for the safety of all students. However, I do believe that we have to remember that that is only a consequence. An intervention must take place. And, it, you know, as a school system, as I'm sure um, the, the high school was advocating for additional um, uh, counseling, therapy, whatever it, that, um, that student needed, um, should have been um, um, going on for him. But, you know, when a student is 18 years old, um, it's very hard to, uh, you can't legislate it. And, you know, you have to work with the parents and, and, and you have to be partners and hope that the parents see the um, issues as well and will move in and get help for their child. That's Fran Rabinowitz, again, Executive Director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, thank you for your time. I wanted to fit in another guest before we head to break. Uh, again, this is now Paul Gianfrido, President and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. Mental Health America, used to be the mayor of Middletown many years ago. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I understand that you live uh, pretty close to where this shooting took place in Parkland, Florida. You wrote a piece uh, on your website yesterday about, yet again, another school shooting. Uh, We were talking earlier with Nelba Marquez-Green, with Senator Blumenthal, about how we continue to talk about violence in this country what are your thoughts on how we move forward from here? Well, it's um, really hard to express how distressing it is to hear the kinds of conversations that are taking place today about this, um, because I think that the opportunities uh, to act and to intervene are have been staring us in the face for a very long time. 
but that we continue to um, go down the wrong pathways. And while I appreciate um, how much people want to react and do something um, in, in the aftermath of horrible violence like this, the, the fact that they focus in on uh, mental health of shooters and not the mental health of the victims, mm-hmm. the fact that they focus in on uh, the activities, the behavioral aspects of the individual and not the institutions, the school, for example, that expelled this particular individual or the society that doesn't provide uh, adequate early identification and early intervention services. And there's culpability here, but the people who are culpable are the people who have controlled the purse strings for years and years. And that's politicians, and that's public officials, and that's on the health side and the education side. And they've had their heads in the sand for a very long time about these things, and that's why they continue to happen. You write that uh, we must look at the conditions that predict violence, not to just react when violence happens. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, uh, the politicians that hold the purse strings. Uh, what would you like to see happen in Congress beyond the conversation that happens every time, which is about gun control? But what else needs to be talked about? Well, let's just talk about two things here. I mean, the, the first is that what happens with um, individuals um, who engage in horrific acts of violence, usually there are uh, these, these activities are actually predictable. Um, and, and we know what the things are that would predict violence. It's not past history of mental illness. I mean, there are millions of people walking around with serious mental illnesses in the United States who don't have a single thought of violence at any time in their lives. So it's more likely, in fact, that they're young men, and and that's a greater predictor of violence than mental illness is, and yet we would consider that to be absurd, and yet we don't think it's absurd to say, well, it's got to be the mental health problems. Mm -hmm. For people like the superintendent of the Broward County Schools who say, well, you know, this this kid was clearly insane was the word he used, and for President Trump who talks about the, the mental health problems that are there, let them put their money and resources where their mouths are. Only one in every 28 children who has a serious mental illness is identified as having that mental illness for special education purposes using that SED label. One in 28. That means 27 in 28 are not even being identified. And the reason is because they don't want to have to spend the money to educate those kids up to the age of 23 because they've got a legal entitlement to it. So what we need to do, first of all, for those kids is make certain that we do early identification, early intervention. And that's what the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says. Everybody over the age of 11 ought to be screened regularly for mental health. And that's all of us, children and adults. And if we did that, we would find problems before they began to occur. But if you want to look specifically at violence, you have to look at things like past history of violence. You know, were people exposed, and Senator Blumenthal made a passing reference to this at the the end of your interview with him this morning, were people exposed to domestic violence at some time in their lives? Now, I'm not saying this particular person was, but that's a predictor of violence. People have had two exposures to past domestic violence, that's a predictor of violence. We need to be able to intervene. We need to be able to understand that that's a predictor of violence. We need to understand that living with people who have been criminals is a predictor of violence, living in unsafe neighborhoods is a predictor of violence. And we need to do something societally about those things, or we're gonna continue to have school shootings and nightclub shootings and airport shootings as we've had in uh, Florida over the course of the last year. 
Paul Gianfrido, again, is president and CEO of Mental Health America. We're going to tweet out a link to uh, the post you put on uh, yesterday uh, after uh, the Parkland, Florida news broke. Uh, we thank you for calling in today, Paul. No problem. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue to take your phone calls after the break. We're also going to hear about uh, what has happened in Florida since the Pulse nightclub shootings. And we'll hear from a reporter uh, based in Florida. That's right after the break. And our phone number here, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, uh, we're, uh, we changed up our show last minute so we could uh, offer you, the listener, a chance to call in and talk about uh, your response to this latest school shooting. It's the 18th school shooting to happen in 2018. It's only February 15th. And I wanted to take a quick call before we head to our next guest. John's calling from Bridgeport. John, go ahead with your, your question or comment. Hi. Um hard to focus <clears throat> my thoughts on this issue. I, I'm, a, I'm a social worker, um, a former teacher, a lifetime hunter, started hunting when I was five years old. Um, I, I believe, obviously, that, that some of the answers lie in, in uh, mental health and sensible gun laws. Um, I think it's absurd that there's an eight, whatever this gun is, AK-15 or whatever it is, that's available to people. Um, I think it's it's a pathetic comment on our culture that we have to pre- prepare our kids to run and hide in schools, that they're so unsafe. I have very little hope or faith in our leaders to do anything, especially in this current administration. Uh, I'm feeling uh, pretty angry and pretty hopeless, and I'm tired of hearing about um, these atrocious incidents. Thank you. Thank you, John, for your call. Uh, Brendan, Brendan Byrne joins us now. He's actually a reporter for WMFE uh, Public Radio in Orlando. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I understand that you have a, a personal connection to what happened in Parkland, Florida. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, um, that was the high school I went to. Um, I graduated in, in 2005. I, I grew up in, in that town, and um, my mother-in-law was, was a teacher there. Um, she, she managed to get out yesterday. Um, but uh, it, it's when you know the news story becomes personal, and, and you, you kind of have that 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 moment where um, you know it, it really affects you. You, know? uh, you mentioned that your mother-in-law taught there at that school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she was uh, she was a teacher. She was my teacher. She's uh, she was still a teacher. Um, and, and she was there uh, yesterday morning. We played a tape from another teacher um, earlier in the show from that school who says that they've done all the trainings and yet uh, it still wasn't enough. How do you respond to that? Um, you know, that, that seems to be the sentiment is it obviously wasn't enough. There were 17 people killed. Um, I think that it's, it shows something about how, how we prepare ourselves, um, you know, in the wake of these mass shootings. Here in um, Orlando, we had Pulse two years ago, of course, in, in Connecticut. Um, you've also had uh, shootings as well. You know, the, the first thing that came to my mind was um, I saw the news alert. Um, I saw the school name. I, I knew that my mother-in-law was there, and I picked up my phone and I texted her because that was ingrained. If it's an active shooter, don't call. You don't want to draw attention to a possible victim there. Um, and, and the fact that all of this stuff is, is kind of a, uh, ingrained in, in our minds and, 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 you know, we're set for that. I mean, it goes to show you about, 
you know, the, how much effect these, these shootings have on, on us as, as a society. Whenever these conversations happen, there is also a focus on gun laws. Um, after the Pulse nightclub shootings, did anything change in Florida related to gun laws? Here in Connecticut, there were uh, a movement to uh, tighten up um, gun laws, to ban certain types of weapons. What happened after Pulse, and is there any talk in Florida now of changing anything now that Parkland has happened? Yeah, so a- after Pulse, um, some... Um some state legislatures, uh, legislators put on the table an assault weapons ban um, that that received what what one uh, Democratic state legislator called a cricket committee. Uh, basically, it, it didn't get a hearing um, after uh, after the Las Vegas shooting. Uh, a similar bill was was put on the table, and and, and nothing happened there. In fact, uh, in the legislative session after Pulse, um, there was an expansion uh, or an attempt for an expansion of of gun rights. Um, there was a campus carry bill that would allow. Um, people with uh, licenses to, to carry weapons on universities and college campuses. Um, there was another bill to have open carry here. Um, all of those uh, did not make it through the legislature, but, but they made it farther than um, uh, the anti-assault uh, weapons ban did as well. So it, it seemed like it was the opposite of, of what happened in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. We, we, uh, the state decided to expand gun rights rather, rather than uh, constrict them. That's uh, Brendan Byrne again. He's a reporter for WMFE Public Radio in Orlando. We just have a couple of seconds left, Brendan. Uh, Again, we talked earlier about the importance of addressing trauma in people's lives, trauma in communities. Um, What what are some of the lessons from Orlando that can help uh, Parkland, Florida today? Yeah, I think your previous guest um, was made a very good point is that, you know, there's a, a lot of people that are going to be grieving and a lot of people that are going to be affected. Um, it's not just the, the victims of, of the school. There were hundreds of hundreds, if not thousands, of students that were there that were running. They're going to have um, uh, some issues, and just they're all going to be grieving together. And, and the community needs to come together and help. Thank you so much again, Brendan. And we're going to carry WMPR is going to carry President Trump's uh, response at 11 a.m. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Katie Talarski. This is where we live.